Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 82. Following the French Revolution, academics and rulers and politicians and philosophers, they were all really, really, really concerned with how easily it seemed that civilization could just in an instant fall away and the citizens of a city gather and then become angry, angry mobs. And lots of people in positions of power were eager to learn how to keep their heads off of pikes in the future. And with the revolution still fresh in everyone's mind and the after effects still being sorted out, the 1800s became a time in which the nature of crowds became a subject of much debate. One person emerged from all of that debate and discussion with a book, one that tried to explain what happens to a person subsumed by a collective. His name, Gustave Le Bon, the year 1895, and he was one of the first sociologists. He wrote The Crowd, a pre-scientific book of hypotheses and observations of things that he had seen himself or had heard of from others in a time period of great flux, following a great revolution, And as such, he was somewhat obsessed with understanding how people could be manipulated by a charismatic leader. Basically, he said, crowds are dumb. And if you can sufficiently blow their minds, you can get them to do anything you want. It was a very popular book. Very, very popular. Reprinted for 25 years, translated into 17 languages used by the Nazis and Lenin and Stalin as a guide, and by the early psychologists as a starting point for how to study people in groups. And even today, this is how people on the left and right think about people who don't believe the things that they do. And Gustav Le Bon is invoked in modern debates, modern arguments about the nature of crowds, about the idea that Crowds are irrational subhuman automatons, a mass of people ready to be programmed, and they never program themselves. An outside force is telling large groups of people what to do and what to think. And that outside force is more effective if its message is general and chock full of ideas like glory and freedom and fear. Le Bon said there was a great power in vagueness and ambiguity when it comes to speaking to a large group of people. But here's the problem. All of those things that Le Bon asserted that have greatly influenced our thinking, both professionally and as lay people, when it comes to crowds and mobs and giant groups of people and concerts and political rallies, it's probably wrong. It's not really holding up to scientific scrutiny. And that's what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McRaney, 
I will be your host, and our guest today is Michael Bond, who writes in his book, The Power of Others, that although this is still the dominant view on the matter, and that most of us believe this thanks to our received wisdom, the evidence coming out of the latest research in the crowd psychology is chipping away at the Bond's assertions. Hear what he has to say about that and many other topics in crowd psychology after this break. I love learning just for the pure pleasure of it, and that's why I'm a big fan of the Great Courses Plus video learning service. They have more than 7,000 engaging video lectures presented by top professors on so many topics, and you can subscribe to the Great Courses Plus to get unlimited access to all of them. Watch all that interests you. Make a playlist. Make a playlist of all the things you care about topic by topic. It's easy to fit these short videos into your schedule and stream them anytime on any device. I recently watched their very popular course, The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries, presented by astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. If you liked Cosmos, this is a deeper dive into the heart of some of science's greatest mysteries, including extraterrestrial life, multiple universes, string theory. I like the part where they talk about, if we do find life, how would we determine if it's intelligent? How would we communicate to it that we are intelligent? This is something that scientists have talked about and discussed and debated for decades. You can learn all about it in The Inexplicable Universe from Neil deGrasse Tyson. The Great Courses Plus is giving my podcast listeners a special opportunity to experience these engaging lectures right now when you sign up by giving you one month free immediately and unlimited access to all of the Great Courses Plus lectures. Start your free month today by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. My name is David McRaney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast, and what follows is a rebroadcast of our interview with Michael Bond from a couple years back. So how is, how is LeBond wrong? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today with our guest, Michael Bond. He is a journalist. He is a science writer, a journalist who writes a lot about psychology and sociology uh, in the UK. He's a consultant for New Scientist. And uh, he's also been a senior editor at New Scientist as well. Um, Michael has also done research and reporting on suicide bombers, putting himself in great personal danger to actually go to the places where these suicide bombings have happened and talk to the families and really try to understand what's going on there. So we're going to talk about all of that stuff in the interview. Let's pick his brain. Okay. Hey, Michael. Uh, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for coming. Um, I love your book, uh, The Power of Others. And the um, what I like a, a lot about this book is how it, it is, um, if you're a fan of um, 
pop psychology books, you're a fan of these sort of um, thinking books, you will um, you'll be able to ease right into it. But also it immediately gets to some really big and challenging ideas. So uh, I think it's really cool. So I really appreciate you making this for all of us to enjoy. Well, thanks for Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So let's just go, let's just right off the bat, let's try to define something that you are, are eager to define first of all in the book, and that is something called emotional contagion. What is that? So this is something that happens all around us every day. We're, humans are very sociable creatures. We're very good at coordinating across groups. And one of the innate mechanisms that we possess that enable us to do that is mimicry. Uh, we copy each other all the time. You can just see this day to day if you're a group group of friends or in a meeting in the office and you sit back and observe how people copy each other's body postures and facial expressions. And that soon leads into a kind of mimicking of emotions because once you assume somebody's uh, facial expression, then you quite quickly, because of the way uh, body posture and expression translate into emotion, you quite quickly pick up on what they're actually feeling. So that propagates itself across groups pretty quickly. So emotions are contagious just because of the inherent uh, sort of physiology that, that we own that allow us to cooperate with each other seamlessly. And you write about how a lot, this mostly happens beneath our conscious awareness. And uh, if someone is living with like a, a really depressive person, um, well, what could somebody, what would somebody expect to experience if they happen to be, find themselves living, say, with a roommate who is uh, very, very depressed? Yeah, well, this, this is a good, good example because you're not going to be consciously aware of when you pick up on people's uh, emotional expressions. It, it, it happens, as you say, um, without us uh, realizing it. And so if you're, if you're sharing uh, a living, living quarters with someone who is always depressed, now, the part of the way uh, that, that they express their depression is going to be on, on their face. They're going to be looking sad a lot of the time. And if you have any kind of empathy, then you're likely to be copying that expression quite a lot. And you can try this yourself. It's very easy. If you, if you turn down the corners of your, of your mouth and you kind of crunch up the, the inner edges of your eyebrows and assume that sort of um, look of sadness, pretty quickly you start to feel sad yourself. So if you're living with someone who is depressed... Uh, you're likely to take on some of that. But, of course, then you, you start to think, well, should we avoid people who bring us down like that? Uh, probably not, because, I mean, that's also the worst thing you could do, because people who are depressed, uh, social isolation is, 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 is one of the um, consequences and which, which, which make it worse. So, in a way, you want to do everything you can to, to break into that isolation, right. but there are going to be consequences. But it brings up such an interesting idea, which is that we, we, I know that, um, you know, American society is very individualistic and there's sort of a, a, a gradient, uh, across human cultures of some cultures are more communal and some are more in, uh, individual there. They value that idea, but regardless of whatever your like cultural, like, um, 
uh, norm is, uh, we still, regardless, are tend to catch other people's emotions. And it just seems mm-hmm. like I think the average American would find it um, a little difficult to believe that they're so susceptible to uh, whether it's very positive or very negative emotions or even, you know, nuanced things in between that we're that we're permeable to those things. Yeah, yeah. It's people don't like the, this idea because it it gives the sense that you you don't, you're not in, in control of, of of how you feel and you're at the mercy of others but i mean i i see it in a in a in a positive way um uh i mean without this kind of capacity to take on what other people are feeling then we would be pretty isolated ourselves we would feel pretty isolated i mean it 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 has uh, terrific uh, uh, survival aspects. This this kind of mimicry. Um, and I don't. I don't think it can be negative. I mean, there, there are negative consequences, of course, because as well as adopting people's feelings, we adopt their their behaviours, and uh, there are examples of that all 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 around. I mean, the kind of decisions you make for when you vote, when you uh, invest, when when you buy music or or, or, or clothes or um, fashion this they you're tending to to follow what what other people are doing it's very hard to step out of that and to mm-hmm. isolate yourself from those kind of those kind of norms um, the key of course is really to look at the people that you're you find yourself following and 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 to think about whether they are acting on uh, good information or whether they are also just following for the sake of following so there are ways by being aware of this that you can uh, improve um, your decision making mm-hmm. when you're doing it in the, in the context of a group, but it's it's difficult. Yeah, I I've written before myself about thinking about conformity. How you know it's very difficult to actually be a true non-conformist. I mean, you're uh, if you if you say I'm not going to wear those pants or I'm not going to wear those socks, you're still going to wear pants and socks. I mean, you're, you're, there's, it's difficult to be a con- complete, true nonconformist. You're, 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 you're soaking in this, um, the social atmosphere. I mean, that's what makes us people. That's what separates us is this, yeah. uh, it yeah. makes us primates at least. That's right. And, 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 and you have to ask, well, would you really want to be a, a total nonconformist? Um, would you really want to step out of, of that social influence? Because, um, the consequences could be dire in 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 terms of being isolated, feeling isolated mm-hmm. uh, in society. You know, that's some of the worst worst aspects um, on the on the other side of the coin. There, so I think that there there are obvious good reasons why we might not want to step out of that. But but by being aware of uh, of this tendency to conform, we can perhaps avoid some of the worst uh, consequences of it. Could you mention, uh, could you um, sort of go into a little bit of detail about what happens uh, in experiments in which people are given Botox? <laughs> well, this, this is a very good, uh, very good example. Um, so we were talking about uh, emotional contagion and how you're not really aware of it. Well, you become aware of social mimicry and contagion really only when the other person that you're interacting with stops mimicking you and pretty soon you feel that something's up without being able to put your finger on it now people who have botox injections into their frown muscles on their forehead to try and stop the effects of of aging and and um smooth out their skin 
Well, that prevents them from being fully able to take on some of the expressions of, of sadness uh, because you can't move some of those muscles that you would do if you were feeling uh, truly sad. So if you're speaking with someone and, you, and, and you've had the, the, these Botox injections and they uh, are exhibiting expressions of sadness on their face and you're incapable of mimicking them, then that is almost certainly going to have an effect on, on that interaction. And neither of you may notice why, but it's likely that the person you're with is going to feel that something's not, not quite right. Perhaps that you don't you don't like them or something or or, or something in that interaction is mm-hmm. uh, is not as fluid as it should be. So, so that's one thing to think about. Yeah, you write in the book how um, if you when people are given these uh, in experiments in which people are are put into situations where they will feel happy or sad or angry. Um, mm-hmm. Once they've had both Botox treatments, they find it more difficult to feel not happy, but they do find it more difficult to feel sad and angry. So, like it. Uh, losing the ability to express it on your face uh, sort of takes you out of the um, um, takes away your ability to fully experience emotional contagion or participate in spreading it then and, and it draws That's right. attention to the mimicry itself which is astounding to me because you uh, you you mentioned the book about um, having a secret cameras filming people eating at dinner and how slowly people will just synchronize all of their behaviors and movements and when they take bites and everything else. And this mimicry is just a really large part of being a person that goes sort of uh, past our conscious awareness. And it's amazing to me. Yeah, it's, it's a really big part of, 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 of being human. I mean, without it, we'd be uh, some, something completely different. Um, I mean, other primates do it too, but humans seem to do it uh, more efficiently uh, than than any other species, and I mean, eating is a is is a good good example. If you're with a if you're with a group of people sitting around a table sharing sharing a meal, um, usually you have no idea the extent to which people are coordinating the way they eat, uh, the, the the time that they lift their glass to their lips or or, or, or lift their fork, um, and but yeah, there've been several uh, studies. Uh, that show just the extent to which this happens. If it's very highly coordinated and happens within seconds, mm-hmm. um, so it's like a sort of, sort of something balletic about it when, when you when you watch films and you're aware w- what's going on, um, and and this is all part. Of, it, it's a kind of social choreography, really. It, it oils the, the wheels of of our social interactions. Um, that seems to be the purpose of it. But but we're never aware of it. Right. Well, that's. This uh, gives us the opportunity for a great segue, and that is, so if that is largely invisible, there is something that has been very visible throughout history, um, and that's the behavior of mobs and crowds and um, large groups of people in revolutionary periods of time. And you discuss how people tend to write about and hypothesize about the source of this crowd behavior, especially right after a major event, and the conclusion about rioters for many years and even today amongst many people is that they, that it's um, it turns people into mindless animals and that um, people in mm-hmm. positions of power and authority tend to say that in the right circumstances, you know, a crowd just can just immediately turn into an angry mob and spontaneously begin doing heinous things. And, but despite this being the commonly held belief about people in large numbers, you say that the science doesn't really support this view. And so what does the science say about that? Yeah, this view it goes back probably to the 
to the French Revolution, uh, at least, um, this idea that, that, that mobs are somehow crazy and that the people in a mob lose their identity, lose any sense of, of, of who they are. And I think that's, that's really what, what the science has, has shown not to be the case. Um, and, I mean, I should point out, it's, it's quite hard to, to study this, the science <laughs> of crowds. Right. I mean, you know, the only way you, you really do it is to, is, is to embed yourself in. And, and part of my book is actually following the people who, who have done that uh, over the years. Um, and it means going into a, a crowd, be it a, uh, a football crowd or uh, a big group of demonstrators on the streets, with a notebook, with a, uh, a tape recorder, and just uh, observing what what happens, and and the general scientific consensus is that people, when they're in a crowd, they don't lose their identity as such, but their sphere of interest ramps up from the the personal, the individual, to the group. So you mm-hmm. put another way, you become interested in what's going on around you. I mean, a good example of, of how that happens is if you're sitting on, a, uh, on, 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 a, on an underground train um, on, a, on the subway, and you're, this happens in London, you're, people tend to be on those trains and then looking at their paper or they're reading their, their phone and they're not looking around. They don't want to, certainly in, in England, they don't want to make eye contact with anyone around them. You know, it's all very personal private space but right. as soon as something happens on that on that train if if it if it comes to a halt suddenly or you know there's a smell of, of burning or something then pretty quickly you stop reading your phone and you look up and at that point people actually tend to seek out eye contact with with those around them and very soon you've got a what's called a, a psychological crowd mm-hmm. and there's a kind of um uh a sort of sense that everybody's in this together and that people are interacting and very interested in what's going on. And so, and, but there's nothing irrational about it. I, I think that's the important point. There's, I mean, people have not suddenly become irrational because they're in that group situation. They just uh, make decisions on, on, a, on a different level and in cooperation. It's a very highly cooperative environment. Um, so I think that's what's different it's not a it's it's not madness or irrationality it's just a different level of identity right i think you say it's it's a social identity you um, yeah it, people become defined by um you know what what makes them alike or what uh or maybe they're defined by their shared opposition but it doesn't people don't just suddenly become you know crazy uh animals that are, are going to just uh, rape and pillage and destroy everything in sight there's a you write a lot about how that uh, even in riots, the behavior seems to be directed and purposeful. It's not, uh, there seems to be a, there's always sort of a, a goal. Um, and uh, oftentimes it's the goal is simply the, all of these people are in opposition to the police who are hurting them. That's um, yeah, go very ahead. often the case. Yeah, it's very often the case that, I mean, the behavior of crowds tends to be determined by what's happening outside the crowd. So, you have a group of protesters and uh, demonstrating in a in, in the street, and there might be there might be quite a lot of them walking down the street, and you know they're doing they're, they're doing their thing. And then if there's a, if there's a, if the police 
change their behavior towards them. So if they start to crowd them in or, or stop them from walking down a partic- particular street or they, try, or, or they start to get aggressive, then that very quickly changes the whole dynamic inside the crowd. It's normally what's happening outside the boundaries of the crowd that determines what happens inside the crowd. And the crowd as a whole tends to respond uh, in kind to what's going on outside. So, and that means that people who control crowds and who marshal and police crowds have a profound effect on, on how they behave, on mm-hmm. how crowds behave. So, so what, 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 do you, what should, from what you've researched, from what you've learned, what, what are some guidelines you think uh, that seem really apparent for people who are uh, charged with that sort of responsibility of dealing with crowds like that? The key thing seems to be the communication setting up lines of communication between those who are policing the crowd and those who are, who are in the crowd so that those who are in the crowd do not assume that those who are policing them are aggressive and uh, are going to uh, necessarily be violent or in some ways an enemy. And, and, and this has happened quite a lot uh, in the policing of football matches in Europe. It used to be inevitably a very robust response by the police, especially to English fans traveling abroad because they have a a reputation of of being violent. But what used to happen is whenever English fans went to a European city to support their team, the police in that city would treat them all as potential thugs. Mm -hmm. So there would be this sort of indiscriminate um, reaction to, to the crowd. And that would have the inevitable effect of, of, of turning everyone in the, in the crowd aggressive towards the, towards the police. Um, so, but what happens now, because of the work of, of social psychologists and because of this understanding that, that, that has come out, is that the police tend to have liaison, liaison officers whose job it is to talk to people in the crowd and, and, to, and to build up links so that there's a kind of communication rather than a sense of us and them. Uh, and the key is really just you know, people tend to veer to, to their in-groups in these sort of situations. And if you can make out uh, that the police are not simply an out-group to your in-group, then that's how, that's how progress uh, is made. And now a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. Squarespace offers easy, easy, easy tools. Create your website with Squarespace in a simple, intuitive process where you can add and arrange your content and features with the click of a mouse. Free custom domains with Squarespace makes adding a domain to your site simple. If you sign up for a year, you receive a custom domain for free for a year. And Squarespace offers beautiful templates. Design a best-in-class online store with Squarespace's award-winning templates, customizable settings, and more, all without a single plug-in, and take it to the next level with their seamless commerce tools that allow you to create every aspect of your business and understand it right down to the click. Customer support is 24-7 at Squarespace, no matter how technical your problem trivial seeming your question, one of their team is always online to assist you. Now, here's what you have to do to get it. Start your free trial today at Squarespace 
and enter the offer code so smart to get 10% off of your first purchase. Squarespace, set your website apart. And now we return to our program. And now back to the interview, right where we left off. That's fantastic. And, and it was really um, surprising to, to realize from reading your book that crowds can be reasoned with and, and that we've made a lot of progress into how you should do that. Mm-hmm. And, and that crowds don't just spring to life. They usually are, they're expressing some sort of existing, you know, um, underlying grievance or something that then there's sort of like, they join up together from all walks of life to express that grievance. And um, yeah. What do, you, what do you think it is then that, um, historically speaking, that there's been, that we still have this misconception? What do you think, uh, where, what was that born from, do you think? It's a good question. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I think it's a very easy image to, to support this, this idea that a mass of people are somehow going to uh, harbor evil intent. Um, you know, it plays into... It plays into natural fears, doesn't it? And it and it it has been encapsulated in in, in fiction, in film, mm-hmm. um, and it's. I think it's an easy myth to peddle, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also, although uh, this thinking from social psychologists has started to, to make an effect on the way police, certainly in um, in Europe, police crowds. It, it hasn't actually, in the public conversation, had had much of an impact, uh, and, and nor among politicians. We had a, a serious case of, of rioting in in London um, uh, three years ago, uh, in the in several UK cities, and this did a lot of damage, and a, there was a lot of arson, and a lot of uh, shops were, were were broken and burned, but the politicians immediately grabbed onto this sort of historic, mm-hmm. historical line that everybody in that crowd was inherently criminal uh, and bad. And, of course, what that enabled politicians to do was to dismiss any kind of genuine grievance that those communities might have had, to dismiss them out of hand. Uh, so, in a way, it allows this myth of, of crowds being mad and, 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 and evil, allows those in authority to wash their hands of it and, and not take responsibility for any kind of violence or right. any kind of um, cause. So, yeah, I think it, I think it really, I think it's still a very prevalent, prevalent myth. Oh, I, I know it. I definitely know it is just from where I live because I live pretty close to New Orleans. And uh-huh. um, after Hurricane Katrina, uh, we had a lot of damage where I live, but, you know, of course, uh, New Orleans had a lot of horrible things happen to them as well. And so living nearby, we weren't witness to what was happening in New Orleans, but we did get lots and lots of uh, information by way of rumor. And um, right. almost all of the, in the early days, all you heard about was like, oh yes, New Orleans has become uh, just a, you know, it's gone back to medieval times. People are rioting and pillaging and uh, the Superdome is on fire and all these things that are, that, uh, uh-huh. and that, um, I still meet people who still believe that that really happened. Um, but yeah. it turns out that, that actually there was very, there's almost, there's very little of anything like that happened. Uh, most, almost all of that was a rumor. It wasn't true. 
uh, but it sort of fit people's uh, expectations of a narrative, and, and it created a narrative that people were willing to go along with. And um, I, I thought back on that when I was reading your book, that that's something that people lean on immediately whenever um, whenever people gather in a large groups for whatever reason, and, and, and they assume that it's going to end up being this violent, mindless, uh, horrifying riot. Um, yeah. It's a very hard, very hard narrative to to shift, um, yeah. and I think, uh, I mean, even if for people who who've been involved in in, in crowds, uh, you know, it's still very easy for them to believe that crowds are, are mindless and and mad. But I think, I mean, it's worth people being aware of this when they're in a in a peaceful crowd situation at a at a music festival and. Um, or, or, or anything, a r- religious gathering, because there are the crowds can f- can be great places to be. They can be truly up- uplifting, and um, mainly because of the the cooperation uh, that happens w- within it, and, and, mm-hmm. and the coordination. And it, it can feel like a, a a great place to be because people are um, uh, communicating very easily, and and it's all about what's happening at that at that time so there's a sort of level uh of interaction that you know you you might not get usually we we had the olympics here in 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 london recently and this was one of the highlights of 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 people's lives you know people have lived here for, for for decades talk about that that time and it was simply because there was a a feeling everybody coming to the city and it very much changed the the dynamic dynamic and the the sense of interaction and communication there. So there, there are upsides to, to being in a crowd. Mm-hmm. And, and you, and you talk about how, you know, crowds oftentimes, and especially in a crisis or in, a, in a, some sort of emergency situation, mm. people organize very quickly uh, to be empathetic, to be helpful, to gather resources, to aid people who are hurt. Um, people don't just step on each other's faces and go for big screen TVs. I mean, people do tend to actually, uh, organize around a common purpose, which oftentimes that purpose is let's all survive this. Absolutely, yeah. But there are many studies on how crowds behave during during disasters, um, and in fact, if, uh, if you talk to the emergency services, they they will often say that one of the, the hardest thing for them in a in an emergency, in a crowd emergency, if there's a fire in a in a building or or, or a bomb threat or or something like that. The hardest thing is to get people to move, mm-hmm. to get people to actually go for the exit, um, because people often tend to be much more passive than than you would think. Uh, in there was a study on what happened during uh, the Twin Towers at nine eleven. Once the planes had hit, the amount of time that it took people to start to move down the stairs, to move away from their desks. Um, it was, I think, an average of six or seven minutes, but a lot of a lot of people took much, much longer. And this is because when there's a sense that you don't quite know what's going on, and other people don't look like, like they're taking action, then you're going to follow what's happening all around you. And so this sense of passivity tends to dominate, and that's one of the real real challenges for those who who actually have to deal with crowds and emergencies. Right. Yeah. I've read, um, I think some emergency responders call it negative panic. Um, Ah, that's a good term. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Um, and the, there's a, I forget the, the researcher, but there's a, there's a great experiment in which they had people sitting in a room 
it's, it's like one person who's the subject and everyone else is a confederate. And uh, so they're actors. And mm. they start filling the smoke, up, uh, filling the room up with smoke. And it's enough smoke so that it would seem like there's a fire in the building. But all of the Confederates are instructed to just keep taking this test that they're all working on and not act right. alarmed. And so pretty much every single time they do this, the, the one person who's not in on it will just sit there until the room is full of smoke. And if it had been a real fire, they would have died. So we're, right. we're, very, you know, we're very concerned about, well, what is everyone else doing? We immediately look for uh, everyone else's reactions because we, we're so, such social creatures. Yeah, I mean, this this happens. You see this a lot in 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 when ferries sink. Um, you know, we get a few ferry sinkings in European waters, um, but there was one very recently, uh, South Korean ferry, which was full of school children. And in that situation, people tend to be very passive and they wait to be instructed. Uh, and in the case of this South Korean ferry, which was full of school children. Uh, school children used to being told what to do by their teachers. And in this case, uh, the captain and crew were telling them not to move. Mm. And hundreds of people lo- lost their lives when they could have been saved very easily by simply being told to get to the lifeboats. In fact, you know, inducing a sense of panic in that situation could have saved a lot more lives. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, hard. It's, it's, it's so crazy to think. In First stage, step one, induce panic. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's a great, you know, one of the greatest lessons from your book is just that, you know, is to really realize that you're not just this individual actor. And in psychology, they call it the, you know, the fundamental attribution error, the idea that mm. people aren't characters. They're not, um, all of their behavior doesn't come from some sort of wellspring that it just is uh, a the person that they are at all times that from situation to situation, context to context, you change. And that context usually is the people around you. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, the physical situation that you find yourself in. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So before you go, I wanted to, um, I really wanted to get this last thing in and that is you write a lot and you have a lot of actual, uh, firsthand experience dealing with, um, suicide bombers. Uh huh. And uh, so you have great insight into this. And I think that the misconception here is that we tend to think, and you write about this, that we tend to think that suicide bombers, we paint them as being someone who is psychologically damaged or that they are some sort of lifelong fundamentalist or that they're just really poor and ignorant or that they are down on their luck and ready to commit suicide anyway. But Mm. the science and your observations uh, and your reporting show this is not true. So what is it that you've learned and what has science learned about what creates a suicide bomber? Well, wow, that's, that's, that's a question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, this, this, is a, this is a really difficult subject to research and, and also, I think, to talk about because immediately you, talk, you start talking about suicide bombing and clearly it's an inherently evil act mm-hmm. and people immediately assume that the actor has got to be evil too. But, yeah, as you were suggesting there, that all the studies that have been done uh, the, the place I'm most familiar with in, for this phenomenon is, is, is the West Bank and, and Gaza, the Palestinian territories and Israel. And all the studies that have been done there show that it's almost impossible to predict who will go on to be a, a, a suicide bomber because the communities that they are recruited from, I mean, it's not actually going on 
at the moment. Um, I was there in um, the early 2000s when it was, it was, it was happening every day. Mm. But those communities um, full of people uh, living their lives in, in a kind of uh, a war situation. But the, peop- the people who were recruited by the terrorist groups to go into Israel and blow themselves up were almost, there's nothing that could define them and set them apart from the rest of their population. And, and, and the reason we know that is because a couple of researchers looked at Palestinians who had tried but failed to blow themselves up, quite a few. And these researchers had access to them in, 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 in prison. So th- these people often um, very susceptible to, to the views and opinions of others. If anything, uh, it was something like that that distinguished them. But of course, you know, that's not really a, a standout personality trait. And, and then from the other side, there were some Palestinian researchers who looked at people who were involved in these groups. Again, nothing that you could say, you know, that person, that's why they were easily recruited the difference is uh, if you look at the people who actually run these organizations, the people who do the recruiting but who don't volunteer themselves, um, they're often uh, pretty different uh, in personality traits, um, narcissistic. Mm. And so yeah, this is the thing. What the science shows really is that there's nothing that can predict how, whether someone is going to participate in this, so it, it, it you know it's a difficult it's a difficult science to to, to 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 manage and to talk about because it's just telling you uh, effectively a negative. Right. Well, that's, that's no defining, but that in in itself, yeah, that in itself is a, an extremely important thing to know. I think. Yeah, because you know so much of where we go wrong so many times institutionally is in assuming that we understand the situation and. Mm-hmm. Um, the it, it reminded me a lot uh what the way you describe it in the book it reminded me a lot of uh cults and cult behavior where um for a long time people assume that the people who are in cults are a, t- a certain kind of person uh and it's more the science seems to show that it's not really the that anyone could join a cult given the right circumstances it's the more about the cult leaders are a very specific kind of person a very charismatic and right. um a person who is very uh able to immediately elicit feelings of uh, that you're in a family and that you're part of a greater cause and a cause that's worth um, supporting. And then that, um, so it seems like uh, the... Very similar, very similar. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds very similar. And, and, and some yeah. of the techniques, uh, some of the, t- the techniques that the, uh, the terrorist groups use uh, are, are very similar to those used in cults and um, encouraging this, this sense of family. They, they, they would um, uh, gather the recruits into, into groups and, and kind of nurtures them together. So groups of five or six uh, little units. And, do, and so they encourage a sense of loyalty among these people. And of course, you know, when one of them goes off and uh, blows himself up, it's very difficult for the others to pull out because they would then be ostracized. And it's a sort of uh, psychological games that, that these groups play. And, right, yeah. Um, so it's, it's not so, I mean, the focus is very much on these supposed evildoers, uh, who commit these, these awful crimes, but the real focus should be on the groups, the group dynamics 
uh, of the organizations that are carrying them out because there is, I think I'm right in saying there's, there's never been a case of a suicide bombing carried out by an individual who is not associated with a group. Well, hardly any. Right. It's very much a group phenomenon. It's the, um, it's, it's, what you point out is that it's an organizational thing so that it's, uh, you know, uh, they feel, and I know people are going to find this a repugnant thought, but it's that they feel that they're, uh, in a band of brothers, that they're, they're in a, it's, it's Mm. similar to what happens in a platoon where people become very, uh, um, you're very concerned about not letting each other down and about, uh, treating each other well and, um, uh, committing to familial bonds. And, you know, in in a sense, and no pun intended, I mean, they're hijacking primate tendencies and yep. and that's what is that's what's happening in an uh, at least that's the way the way i saw it from what you were writing and that this is just simply uh, that the reason that you have terrorist cells is not so much that it is it makes it harder for them to find and deal with by organizations that are trying to stop them even though that's sort of like a a, a latent function it's that that cell creates that family atmosphere that you find in cults and other things and in also small groups of soldiers that keeps them on task and headed toward the, you know, whatever goal that they've been given. Absolutely. I, I always, I get, I always get in, in, in trouble when I, when I make that comparison, but it is, uh, terrorist groups effectively, they co-op the, the dynamics of, of army units. And, and, uh, it's a very similar psychology that goes on the, the nurturing of, of, of small groups. I mean, it's, um, you know, the, the history of war heroism is sort of tied up with, uh, examples of people doing things who you would never have predicted. Most war heroes are very hard to predict. You look back through their, through their records, oftentimes they have no previous history of, of courage. Um, but in that moment, surrounded by that particular tight band of, of brothers, uh, you know, they, they do something. Uh, and that's ultimately highly altruistic. And it is a similar dynamic in in terrorist groups. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, it's we're not we're not we're not drawing a, a moral comparison here. Oh, of course, we're not, of course, a, not, no, no. a scientific one. But people often, you know, don't distinguish uh, when when this gets talked about. So I often get into trouble for making that comparison. I'm glad you've made it. <laughs> well, well, thanks. I, I'll take that heat. The, uh, <laughs> no, it's fascinating because this is what makes it um, frightening. Is that these, as you write in the book, these these people come from such diverse backgrounds and their own families, their, their actual blood families are astonished that the, mm. that they ended up falling into um, a group of people who could, who could encourage this type of behavior from them. That's right. And, and uh, people who have, who have debriefed uh, suicide terrorists who uh, haven't carried out their act or who have failed people who, who interviewed them afterwards, they, they often say, well, I mean, they're the easiest people to effectively, you know, to, to, to break because, um, their, their world, the worldview that encouraged them to go about this act is not something that is inherent in their, in their personality. You know, there's, there's not some, uh, evil character trait. It's, it's just a situation that they were put in. Uh, and, uh, you know, once you prick that bubble, the whole thing comes crashing down. You know, mm. so that's that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could go on a lot yeah. about this, but yeah, you know, I, I can't uh, do. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, this is um, 
I love the book. We didn't even we didn't get to so much, but it's it's uh, I I highly recommend it. Uh, I love you know you 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 think that this may be material that has been covered before, but no, you have a really uh, a truly uh, new insights and lots of uh, lots of things here to the, that you will read and you'll go, oh my god, I wish I'd uh, my whole life I've thought this and it's actually this way. It's great stuff. Great. Thanks. Um, so I know people are going to want to uh, find you uh, out there. How can someone find you on the internet? Best way is to come to my website, uh, michaelbond.co.uk. All the details on that. And what are you working on uh, now? What are you working on in the future? Well, I'm actually um, I'm doing I'm working on something that's come out of the book. Uh, it's a it's a, a dating website. That sounds kind of bizarre. It's a dating website <laughs> <laughs> based on I've I've done a lot of research in, into why dating websites is, uh, are so difficult to to navigate. Why it's so hard to to find people that we like on them. Um, so it's all about intuitive dating. Is actually through through pictures. It's called Twenty One Pictures, and it's it's trying to uh, put back some of the some of what we know about human psych- uh, human psychology into how we choose people and 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 making it a more real life situation. So it's all done through pictures to try and make the most of our intuition. Um, so that's taking that's taking my time at the moment. <laughs> that is the most you didn't un- expect un- that. <laughs> unexpected answer. So I love it. Um, all right. Well, look. Uh, I thank you so much for coming on the show. I really love the book and I really appreciate you being here. Thanks very much, David. Thank you. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart Podcast. Head to boingboingpodcasts.com for more great podcasts like this one. Go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart to become a patron of the show to support this program to make it better. Go to youarenotsosmart.com for the show notes and for all the other information for all the past episodes of the show. Go there. Go to iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud. You get all the old episodes there. Go to Boing Boing to get all the old episodes. Get all the old episodes. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The music beds in this episode were by Drew Garraway, who is Synthetic Motion on SoundCloud. You can find You Are Not So Smart on Twitter at not smart blog i am at david mcraney find us on facebook it's just you are not so smart about three hundred and fifty thousand fans now join up see all the stuff we put on there fun memes and junk and uh we'll be back soon more stuff more not so smart stuff send me cookies